You're listening to the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you true stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. When Nan McCord was a little boy, all he wanted to do was be among the stockmen working cattle. And for the most part, that was his reality. Until his father experienced a serious and debilitating illness, which saw the family separated and Ned sent to a town school. However, he eventually made his way to the newly established Emerald Pastoral College in hopes of getting back on the land. Little did he know that the one class he thought to be the least relevant to his studies, first aid, would become the most important skill set he would ever have. In this episode, Ned looks back on his early years and tells an incredible story involving a lightning strike on a Northern Territory cattle station. Before we get into this episode, I want to give you a heads up that the first few minutes of audio is a bit rough, but it does go back to normal shortly after, so sorry about that. I think I was probably four when I was going out on short musters, you know, and I'd just be put on this quiet old horse and I'd end up asleep in the middle of the mob and just pushed along with the cattle. But, but yeah, so it, probably by the time I was five or six, I, I got this thing about wanting to poison dingoes and my mother used to make this dingo poison brew up for me, which was Holbrook sauce and tomato sauce and hot English mustard and all mixed in an old rum bottle or something. And and I just, I was allowed to go into a couple of the paddocks away from the homestead and I'd spend probably, you know, a good part of the day out there. Sometimes I'd, and I'd see the men cutting lunches to go. They'd always take a saddlebag and lunches and so I'd want to cut my lunch and I'd have to go foot walking, chasing dingoes because we know there's no 1080 bait in those days of strychnine and things like that so I wasn't allowed to handle the strychnine but I'd seen what the dingoes had done to the calves and so I had this real phobia about you've got to get rid of the dingoes. In your mind that was proper poison that that you were out with? That's right she'd make up this hot brew that you couldn't drink. (laughs) I know that much, but um, and I had to be very careful. I didn't get it on my fingers and all this, like I was handling strychnine. So I, I'd, I'd seen my father uh, poisoning, you know, putting strychnine out or whatever. So I'd go out and I'd take some bit of meat with me and I'd cut up the baits and I'd walk for miles. I'd, I could be out for you know seven or eight hours just, and no one seemed to worry about. It. Well, they must have been worried, but anyway, I'd just turn up home again. I never got lost. I don't know why, but I'd just follow the pads and put them out along the pads and things like that. But, yeah, so I was always, I just sort of had this love with the bush, you know, and I'd see the kangaroos and I'd, you know, follow tracks. But if I wasn't doing that, well, I had to do, we didn't have um, school of the air in those days, we just had correspondence. So we had a a governess. So, but, yeah, when any of my spare time, I'd either out doing dingoes or go out with the stockman or be up at the yards. When I was, I think I was nine and... I was helping my father dip cattle, and in those days we had this old spray dip. 
you had to run the cattle through, and which was sometimes if it was designed so with the prevailing winds. So, but every now and again, the prevailing winds don't prevail, and they come from the other direction. And we're using phosphate. And anyway, that's when my father got really sick, and he he got that I I got. Well, he got really sick. He was. I just remember the ambulance taking him out in the middle of the night. We were probably about, I don't know, 50 kilometres from Eidsville, I think, something like that, if I remember rightly. And But the roads weren't what they are today. So it was quite a big thing. They, they had to get him out, and he was taken off to Brisbane, and I didn't see him for over 12 months. Oh, my gosh. And and, um, and then I got sick. I was in bed the next day because we'd both got this phosphate, but I think because I was younger... And didn't get much of it because some of these cows had been going through plunge dips and they try and jump and they got caught up in the sprays and so you had to go in and get them out and I'd help Dad and get them out. So we both got phosphate poisoning just because the winds were blowing the wrong way. And, uh, and yeah, so after that I got... Um, my older sister and I, we were we were sent to my godparents, which was my father's sister in Tagulawa. So we went there for 12 months and lived with them. And mum was my younger younger brother and sister. They went to my grandparents and we built it out with them. And then mum was down in Brisbane at the hospital um, with my father. He basically lost all his skin and, and you know, he had to have all these special baths and, and whatever. And But we didn't know if he was alive or not. We were just never told. And they, that went on for 12 months. Did they know what caused it when he initially got sick? Yeah, they, they knew it was phosphate, from, yeah, yeah. phosphate poison from the wow. dip, yeah. So then I had to go from, suddenly from correspondence, no preparation, I went to this state school in Tagulawa. I mean, I can't really remember now, but it might have had 250 or 300, but it sounded like, you know, a million kids and teachers and, I'd never been in that environment and I was just so frightened, had to catch a school bus in and my cousin was going to school there, but I just hated it. I used to cry. I was just so upset and going to the school environment. I'd never been with so many people because I'd always been out bush and it was terrifying. I, was, I think I was in grade three or something. I've forgotten now, but but that was 12 months. And, and uh, yeah, so, but they were on a farm. They used to own Dingera, which... Um, was been there for a long time, but they and they were great, great. It was great uncle and aunt. They they were great to us. But that's where I had measles. I had chickenpox. I had all all those things. But no, didn't know if our father hadn't seen my mother came down once to see us, but she was with my father for the whole time, looking after him, nursing him, rehabilitation. Yeah, that whole transition to school would be a huge adjustment on its own, let alone you having and living somewhere else, not seeing your mum or your dad, not knowing what's happening with your dad. That's a lot mm. to take in as a kid. Sounds like you would have had to grow up pretty quick. Yeah, well, it was a survival thing, I think, yeah. And uh, I had this cousin who's a great, great mate, but, you know, he used to bully me a bit because he... But I used to be as cheeky as they could come as well, so I don't blame him, but we're really close, close cousins. But, yeah, we get on really well. Not that I see him much now, but... Um, yeah, we we weren't the best of buddies then because if he picked on me, I used to dob him into his mother. And, <laughs> and, but, uh, yeah, just living with other people. And then it was just like my mother and dad turned up one day. The communication, and I suppose it was, you know, there was no internet in those days or mobile phones or any of that. 
I mean, not that they, it was in Tagulawa, well, that's in the Brisbane Valley. So it wasn't, you know, that far from Brisbane, but it was still a distance. And, and, uh, yeah, so we, we just, suddenly dad turns up with mum and comes and picks us up. And we all go back to Canambula, where we were brought up at Idesfold. But, uh, we had to, dad wasn't, they were told my father that, look, you could live for, you know, two years or you could live for, you know, 60 years, but, you know, we doubt it, you know, and, and um, he was 30, I think he was about 36 or something at that time, so we're all only, you know, my sister and, well, I was only nine at that stage, I think, nine, might have been a year younger, but uh, sister was a year older, so we're all pretty young, we're under under 10. But then we had to move and we, we had a beach house at Coolum Beach, so we moved down there so we could be closer to the doctors because it wasn't, I think it was, it was about that time where his, all his organs started breaking down. That's what they told him. And anyway, but he'd always had a bit of a dicky heart. And, and, uh, so we, we ended up, anyway, we moved down to Coolum. So then here I had to go to a school again and, and not in the bush. So I didn't loathe it, but we had a vacant block behind it, so I was always out there. I'd start the veggie, I'd try and grow corn, I'd try and grow all sorts of things. So I just liked being connected to the environment, I suppose. But anyway, I went to this school, but it had, it only had Coolum Beach now, it only had, um, I think it was about 23 students at it. So I did two, I did, um, two years of school there, and then, then I went off to Southport. What's Southport? Southport School, TSS. It's a boarding school there, down oh, there. Okay. Yeah. So, and I was only, well, I was 12 years old when I went to boarding school. So how, that's when I always say that's when I left home. Yeah. How, can I ask, how did it go with your dad? Did he make a recovery? He, he lived, um, well, he outlived what the doctor said. I think he had another 30, 32 years or 30 years. That's and amazing. He made it just, just over 60 and, and then, yeah, he passed away. But he said it was his heart that gave up in the end, but his other organs were starting to break down. But basically from that age of 36 or 35, whatever he was, he, he, um, was, yeah, he couldn't do much work. So, I mean, he'd always try to because he was a worker, but he, uh, so we, we had another property. Then we had down near Yamundi, so we bought a couple of farms that she developed, and but then that, and he'd have a bloke helping him. And then, and then you know, the, the heart attack started more, and you know, they, they they said when he was sixty, if they'd if they knew what they'd know now, they could have fixed him. But they, this is you know, this is and what they can do now is amazing. But but um, yeah, they they couldn't do anything, so he. Passed away when I was pretty young, but uh, yeah, I, was, I think I was, well, I was just, I was just, just married, so yeah, so I must have been in my early 30s or something, just 30 or 28, whenever I got married, it was a long time ago. Gosh, <laughs> that's just awful. Was it, was it common back then that people would get phosphate poisoning? I, I really couldn't tell you, but I know, you know, that people weren't probably as good as what they are with safety and chemicals now. I mean, you wouldn't go near the damn stuff, you know, yeah. without a space suit on, but, um, you know, we, we were just in our ordinary clothes and the wind changed and so the spray dip was actually coming sort of down the, the race. It was probably coming halfway down the race and we're chasing these old cows up into it and big Santa Catrudas cows, but a Santa Catrudas stud. And so, yeah, so that was, um, 
pretty tough time, but I mean, you know, like, and you know, you could be out with dad and he'd be trying to do something in the paddock and he'd suddenly collapse on you, have a heart attack, and you know, you'd have to sort of do something about it and whatever. So get him to the hospital and yeah, so he couldn't do a lot. And so at that stage, when I come, I'd come back from boarding school, I, I'd, I'd, you know, I want to go bush straight away, so I'd be. I'd go out to the farm and I'd have jobs to do there and I'd be just left there. Dad would either be in hospital or couldn't be out there. So, I mean, he'd spend time when he could out there with me, but he, he uh, and mum had come as well because we lived at Coolum, which was close to Nambour hospitals in, in those days. And and he, uh, yeah, so they'd just leave me out there and I was only 11 or 12 and 13 and I'd have to look after and maybe a man had come in and, give me a hand sometimes but I'd look after this farm we had quite a few cattle and do the fences and taught and suckers and whatever and I'd spend my holidays out there I just loved it so I'm um, just being out bush I think I think I was ease on the family because I'd always you know pretty active and and just yeah so you know burn up my energy out there and had horses and go riding and but um yeah it's a lot of responsibility for a young teenager to and, you know, you've got to be capable to do it. I mean, I know kids that age that can't even make a toasted sandwich, so it sounds like you were pretty handy for someone that age. Yeah, well, I don't know about handy, but I was learning <laughs> learning, yeah. learning quickly, but I'd have to cook for myself. And um, But there's things that I wouldn't think, you know, was probably... Well, they must have trusted me in the sense that they knew I'd so, you know, be okay, but, I mean, I wouldn't think to leave a child at 12 on their own on a... It was only a farm, but just the same. I was, you know, had tractors to drive. I was riding horses and all sorts of things. So I must have had a sense of responsibility about me that, that yeah, I survived anyway. So I'm still here today to talk about. It. But I mean, they were great years. I've got no complaint. It wasn't like they were making me do it. Just, just mm. where I wanted to be. Watching what happened to your dad, did that ever make you stop? And not not just what happened that, like, with the time you went to hospital, but then how it affected him for the rest of his life. Did that ever kind of put you off being in this kind of line of work on a farm, thinking, could that happen to me? No, I don't think I've ever thought of it like that. I mean, and, and Dad was, as you know, like, he was a tough father. Like, he was very strict. I mean, but he was tough, but he was fair. And uh, I respect him for that. And I had a, you know, I think as as I got older as a teenager, I think I got on better with him than when I was probably younger. I was probably too ratty for him when I was really young. That's why he probably sent me out to get get away from me. But uh, but yeah, just talking about the bush, like when I was at Southport School, I only went to year ten. And I did year ten, and 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 I decided I was going bush. And but before that, it must have been in year nine. And I was mates with this boy, and anyway, he was pretty upset and homesick and that. We ran away from school, and it just ended up that I've had, I've got a only one sister didn't run away. That's the oldest one, the young the younger brother and the younger sister. We all ran away from school at some stage. So the poor parents must have. But anyway, I was going bush, and I just and, and the idea. And this boy came from Redcliffe, so I got on a bus with him. We snuck off at night, and we got on a bus and. And and uh, we were smoking at that stage too as well. So we, we were pretty young. So we were probably only 13 or something smoking and at, at school when we shouldn't have been. But anyway, we, we got to um, 
got to Redcliffe, that's where he came from, then we spent a couple of days there, and then, but I was going bush, I was catching the bus and ready to go, I was, and bush was Cunnamulla, must have been from the Slim Dusty song, but as far as I knew that Cunnamulla was bush, I had to go, that's where I was running away to, I was going to get a job at Cunnamulla, <laughs> I was going to be the fellow from Cunnamulla, but <laughs> anyway, we didn't get there, we got picked up by the police in, in Redcliffe, and uh, returned to school. Anyway, so I settled down again. I think the young boy, the other boy, I can't even um, remember his last name, but I can't remember his first name. But anyway, he he uh, he he left school shortly after, so it's probably a good thing because we didn't run away again. But he was. But after that, I decided, well, I've got to get Bush somehow, and I read about the Emerald Pastoral College opening up, and so I just applied. I wrote a letter and applied all by myself never even told my parents. And I thought, this is, you know, I'm not staying at school. I'm going out. I've got to get out of here and I might as well go. And that might be a way out. So I don't have to stay and do another two years of school. So I applied and I wrote a letter and I, and I, all by myself, no help from any teacher or anything. And, and, and my parents get this phone call that, well, we'd like to interview your son. And they said, what about? And it was because they had, because I had to put their names and whatever. So anyway, they, they came down and they interviewed me at the Southport and I got into Emerald Pastoral College. So I had a couple of years up there. It was only the second year the college was going. So I did two years at Emerald and, um, and I think, well, I had, I grew up as a, as a teenager there, but then that sort of got me into rodeo riding and all sorts of things. But, but it, yeah, I, look, I learnt bits and pieces there, but I'd always been on the land, but, I had a good time, probably too good a time. But one thing I did learn at, at and, and I, and I remember with my friends there, we kicked up such a stink. But we, before we graduated with our Cert two certificate of animal husbandry and whatever, which would be worthless today, but anyway, it gave us a start. We, we had to do our first aid and we were told, and we're all kicking, oh, what have we got to do first aid for? We're not, don't, I don't think they even called it first aid then, but anyway, it was an ambulance certificate or something. Anyway, and we we're all mucking up in this class and it would have been someone like St John's or whoever came out, Queensland Ambulance came out to deliver this course and, and it was just before we were graduating. So we we're all in the last week and suddenly they thought, no, you've got to have a first aid certificate or equivalent to that in what it was back in those days. So this is back in 70, 70, two or something and anyway king up and the and the the headmaster came in or the principal of the college came in and he said if you don't get your first aid and you don't pass you're out and you will not graduate and you'll be kicked out before you before you um graduate you know only with a week to go so we all settled down and did our first aid certificate and and that's the best thing i've ever done in my life that's what i learned at that college i mean i learned a lot of things at the college but I've, ever since then, I've always kept my, because I've had uses for it and in, 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 you know, accidents that have happened in the bush. And it's probably, I always think it's been one of the best things I've ever learned. So, um, and, you know, probably been able to help people that have been in trouble. And so, yeah, so I've always kept it up to date since, since probably, I think my first ambulance it was 72 or something like that. So, yeah. 
well, can't keep it up the day. It's interesting that you brought that up and you said it's one of the best things you've ever done because when I was trying to do some background research for this episode and I put your name into Google, a story came up where you did use first aid. Yeah, so I've forgotten what years it was now. It's going back a while, but, well, I was the head stockman on Bradshaw. I, I went there in 75, I think, and it was a pretty wild station in those days. Big station, it's 4,000 square miles, and... Uh, we um, we still used pack mules and pack horses every now and again. We'd been mustering right up the northeastern corner, which was called Wambungie in those days. I think it's cut off as a separate station now, but you know it's not that far to go to Pine Creek from that end of it, and the other end of the station, you know, goes out to Gulf of Bonaparte. Anyway, we we were just doing some storm musters and mustering, bringing the sort of we'd done a big coach of muster and walked all these bulls out that. Um, and it was all just aeroplane and coacher mustering and horses and we had a couple of bull catchers and anyway we were coming back doing some storm mustering on the way back thinking well we'll get a good lot of mickeys to bring back and put in a paddock so we'd get an early sail after the wet season because in those days at Bradshaw it was very isolated we had to swim the cattle across the river anyway we, we were camped I think it was a yard called J41 and it was probably 200 kilometres from the um, Bradshaw homestead. We had no sat phones. They weren't even in existence in those days. We had uh, no HF radio. It was a pretty wild old stock camp. We had, and we, um, we got washed out with this storm. And, and we'd been camped down this, there's a big sort of clay pan, big old bronco yard where we had, and we'd had a few cattle coaches that we'd all mustered and you'd start off with, you know, nothing. You go out and you'd have to get a little mob of cattle together and you might start off with the first day you might only have five head and then you build it up and ten head and you nearly have to throw everything and get a few cows together and then you start getting a few bulls and by the end of it you got 300 or 400 head and Anyway, we, we probably had about 250, 300 head and um, bulls and mickeys. And anyway, we had them in this yard and some of the old yards are, were um, all old ironwood posts and whatever, no steel, just and, and a bit of wire and we'd put hessian around them and we'd have to night watch them. They're pretty weak and fragile. Anyway, we got washed out on this big clay pan so we were there for a couple of days we wanted to spell the cattle and the horses and we all needed a bit of a spell and and we got washed out and, and so I decided to move the camp up on top of the sign on Ridge Hill you know it was all ironstone anyway we moved up the top of the hill and the yard's down the bottom and that day we spent chewing horses and drying everything out and and we had one bull catcher there and we took it in turn staling the cattle and watering them and whatever and there's puddles everywhere so it wasn't hard to water them and the cattle were sort of resting and anyway the storm came in and we were just packing up the camp we decided we'd just put the cattle back in the yard and we better yard up and and I had this friend he ended up he, he was my best man when I got married late in later years but um, Martin Bell that was working with me and and he wasn't much of a, he was from around Longridge, so he wasn't much of a cattleman, but he was good at all sorts of other things. And I said to him, well, you get the camp set up. And I said, and he came down and said, it's all ready. And I said, well, just get a big, big fire, really big fire going. So, you know, it might keep going if it's only a light shower. And I raced up the hill to just look at the camp and make sure he had enough drains dug and we weren't going to get washed out again. But 
and, and you know, people always say lightning strikes on top of a hill or, you know, strikes up high. Well, that's not true, I can tell you, if I've been there. But what happened was the lightning um, struck this big ironwood post. It was lucky it was fought, um, fork lightning, it had been direct lightning. And there were, some of the men were tailing the cattle, but there was um, uh, John Brosnan and uh, Peter Dahl and, and um, Andrew Wilson. They were all just getting in the bull catcher. And and um, the lightning hit the bull catcher, but also hit Andrew Wilson. And um, John got sort of half thrown out of the bull catcher and really got like a really bad flash of his eye on the eyes. Like and there was a welding strip along the um, top of the bull catcher, the, the ironwood post that it hit, which was just a big solid, really tough timber, just splintered in half, and. I just heard this scream from one of the men and I was just only 50 metres away and I just didn't even think what, you know, we knew what had happened because we felt the force 50 metres away. Both Martin and I had to sort of step forward from the fire, we'd sort of, from the, just the force of it. And I just raced down the hill and I get down there and I'm thinking, first aid, you see? And, and, and I'm remembering electricity. You don't just go up and touch the thing, you know, because it might be still alive. So I remember racing up and I see the scene. John sort of half fallen out of the Toyota, but he's alive. Um, Peter Dahl, he, he would have been thrown at least, at least, um, 21 feet. From the Toyota, he was getting in the back, so I'd imagine he sort of had one leg sort of leaping up into the back, and he was out to it. And I couldn't tell you this day whether he was just out to it or whatever, but we gave him um, hit in the chest to get him going. And and I got Martin to work on him, and I, I I grabbed Andrew, and I remember running up to Andrew, and he's just dead, basically right next to the Toyota. And if you can imagine a big felt hat. It was in pieces the size of a 50 cent piece, just in little pieces. It had gone down his left side, so his shirt was all burnt and ripped on his left side. Gene was all ripped and burnt and sort of had burns on his left side and he's just dead next to the Toyota. So I raced up and touched him with the back of my hand thinking, electricity, I mean, of course, lightning's there and gone, but you don't sort of think of that at the time. So I just... I grabbed him and just dragged him away from the Toyota because I didn't want to be near the Toyota. And then we started, um, well, I started, Martin was working on um, Peter, the one that got thrown 21 feet, and I started on Andrew. And we started off just trying to get his heart going by compressions and trying to remember what we had to do. And and um, and, and then, because Martin and I were both the only two in the camp that had first aid which was amazing. I didn't even know he had his first aid, so no one kept records of it in those days. And so we got, um, and then and we were doing no good with Andrew and he, and, and then, then, um, then we started, Martin started giving him mouth to mouth and I'm doing his heart and then we took it in turns. And then he, I remember he must have been starting, we must have been getting wind, but we didn't realise this and, you know, and then he, um, I remember he's vomiting and like vomit was coming out of his mouth and all that and 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 he he started making some funny noises and, and we thought like animal type noises and we just thought oh oh and we even stood up and thought no let's you know he's such a great bloke this just let's let him go you know like stop and we actually talked about not doing any more and then all of a sudden, he must have been, the animal noises was, and we didn't realise, but we just felt so guilty. We didn't want to bring him back brain dead, you see. 
And so we, um, we, um, and then he suddenly came out and he said, F and Ned and his bloody mules and pack horses and something like that anyway. And he was cursing me because I'd, he just said, he'd just gone in and brought out a mob of fresh horses and he had to bring these pack mules for a couple of days to, to bring them out. And that was the first words he said. And then we just got into his heart. We just rolled him on his side, cleared him up. You know, we knew we had him and we oh, was just, it was a monument where we're just sort of standing up thinking he's gone, you know, he's just, he's dead and we're not going to revive him. And we worked on that for, we had them down there for about two hours and, and then we had to, I thought we've got to get them out. They're not going to live, we can't, we're not going to live the night, you know, they're not going to live the night. And we, um, so, and, and Martin, because he'd been driving cars ever since he was about four or five years old, because they used to use these old bombs, and then driving, mustering the sheep down there Longridge, he could really drive. He's someone that could drive. And I said, Martin, you've got to drive. And we worked out, we had two choices which way to go. And, 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 you know, it was a good, probably 250k. Well, I've forgotten what time he did it in, but he would have had, um, in this one bull catcher and had a tidal creek and we didn't know what the tides were doing. He just made the tide. He just, the tide was coming in, but he just got across and he got back to the station probably about, oh, nine or ten o'clock that night, back to Bradshaw and alerted the manager. <clears throat> we had this overseer there, um, Dick Gill, the manager was Rolly Walker and Dick Gill, who was a really good mustering pilot and, and we had a 185 at the station. And so he got permission off Cass or whoever to do a mercy flight. And they flew out and just landed on a clay pan out there near the yard. We put flares out and there's a bit of a, he used to land on that in the daytime, but it was amazing. Amazingly enough, he'd brought some stores out only about two or three weeks before and he arrived just on, on dark and we had the flares out. So he'd already done like a practice one. Anyway, he landed there, um, which was really, really good. And we got the boys in and then, into the plane and um, John didn't go. Into, I don't think John went to the hospital, but Peter Dahl, he, he went and, and, and Andrew and uh, they got him into Catherine and they're still alive today, so yeah. That is, that is a wild story. And, um, yeah, well, it was a team effort and, you know, we had, and we, anyway, we were just stuck out there and, but it was, it was pretty scary for a while, yeah. Did you, you were talking about working on the one fella and you, you guys were contemplating, do we keep working on him or not? What about the other fella? Was he? Well, he, we got, yeah, um, so I wouldn't know to this day whether he's completely unconscious or, or just, or was dead. But anyway, Martin got him going pretty quick and, and, um, just pumping his heart. And that, and so we just left him there, like where he was there, we're keeping an eye on him and monitoring. And then, I think after about two hours, we moved him up to the camp and got him on a swag. We weren't going to move them. Andrew, um, once we got him going, we, we carried him like in the car, like he was pretty weak and been, you know, out to it. But, um, and, and amazingly enough, when they came back out, well, Andrew didn't come back out. He went home. He lived down in, um, the ACT or New South Wales somewhere. And it was just, he was a really fit bloke. He used to play two codes of football and league and rugby union. He's, you know, great, great young fella. You know, so well, he's a bit older now, but and anyway, um, he didn't come out. But Peter Dahl came back out and he, 
having a cup of tea this is within the week and he sort of got all powerless down one side of his face and we thought he'd had a stroke and so we anyway we got him out of there and he had to go and get medical checks and, and I never heard from him again and I thought he must have died I just never heard and you know couldn't track him down and and um Amazingly enough, he, he, um, on LinkedIn, his sister wanted to friend me and I thought, oh, darn, I've been, because I'd always thinking about this bloke. And anyway, and he, well, it wasn't his sister, his daughter, sorry, and contacted me and said, are you Ned, Ned McCord, um, worked on Bradshaw? And I said, yeah. He said, oh, you, you helped save my father's life. And, and I said, and, you know, I thought, and I went back, is he still alive? <laughs> anyway, and, and so he rings me up every now and again and we've started started talking again. And John, well, um, I know he's in, they're all in touch, so, which is great, and, and we still talk to Roly, the manager, and, yeah, so anyway, we're all alive to tell the story. I guess that's a sign of the times back then that you could go decades without knowing what happened to those guys. If you you know it's easy enough to lose contact and not be able to find it again. Yeah, well, we never had phone numbers or you know internet like today, or you, there was no Google. There was nothing. We just lost touch with each other. Um, John John stayed and worked with me for quite a while. John Brosnan, um, we worked together for quite a few and kept in you know saw each other because he was in the territory and we used to do a few rodeos together and things like that. So and. Um, but yeah, the the others and Andrew, well, he'd moved down back down south, and you know, used to get a Christmas card or a letter during the year. And but Peter, I, I thought he must have died. I didn't know. And so, do you think any of them went on to get their first aid training after that, or did anyone else in the camp? Like, do you think it became? Yeah, I'm I, guessing the story would have been spread around to you know other stations and. I I, I don't think so, to be honest. Sadly <laughs> enough, I know it's a big thing now. Yeah. Uh, that's, I always that's an promote it. I go to St John's, you know, every couple of years or whatever, and get mine updated and do it again. And I mean, I've had accidents, um, you know, broken legs and all sorts of things, and you know, had to splint them. But probably the <laughs> the worst one was when I had my leg broken by a cow when I was on Mitabar Station, and uh, I was only had an all Aboriginal camp at the time, so there was no first aid, and I remember this cow. I actually jumped up out of the road to get out of the road and she followed me and landed on my leg on top on the top rail and it was quite a big yard and I um anyway I lucky I didn't fall back down with her. She's a pretty mad old thing and wasn't very happy with what was going on at the time and, and uh so I'm there with a broken leg, broke my lower leg in three places and and I remember this big Aboriginal bloke there and I'm on the top rail and I just sung out, catch me, because I couldn't, you know. And anyway, he sort of broke my fall, but I had to actually dive straight onto the black soil in the yard. And uh, anyway, and then I said, so I had to give the orders what to do and I had to splint my own leg up. And then I said, now go, there's an old table, old door or something down in the camp there. And, and I got him to go and get that and put me on that and lift me in the back of the Toyota. But... Uh, and then I got on the HF radio. We had HF. This we're getting modern. This this era. This is in the eighties. And and anyway, we um, late eighties, and we and I was married at this stage. 
It was Easter Saturday, and while I was working Easter Saturday, my wife still condones it. She said she hates Easter Saturday because it must have been trauma. I was meant to be coming back in, finish the draft, and coming back in for my um, daughter's birthday party, must have been. So, yeah, so anyway, she was only, only probably one or two then. So... Uh, anyway, and I get on the HF radio, so everyone's on the same channel across the Barclay. And I said, I got on to her and she answered the radio and I said, oh, there's a, there's, we've got a broken leg out here. And she says, all oh, right, okay. And I didn't want to say to me because everyone in the district had know I'm lying down out in the middle of nowhere with a broken leg. So, And then she's saying, so, um, right, and, and so where is it and da-da-da and asking for a few details so she could ring up the flying doctor. And in the end, she's saying, so um, who is it? And I'm saying, uh, uh, well, it's uh, me. <laughs> anyway, so anyway, so I had the boys drive the Toyota. I had this brand-new Toyota and we hadn't graded the road, so it was an early muster after the wet and it's a black soil. It was about 100 kilometres back to the homestead. Oh, that sounds like so, a very uncomfortable drive. And it was, uh, and and I've you know I've had bull riding and whatever. I've had broken collarbones, broken nose, but I decided that day I felt pain for the first time in my life. Anyway, Bernadette, my wife, was um, fantastic and came out and met us about halfway with some pethidine, <laughs> and that's the best. Best, best meeting I've ever had anyway. She was like an angel coming and she sat in the back of the Toyota with me, but it was still painful, but I, I had plenty of pethidine and, and, um, we got back to the station and, but it was amazing in those days and, and how things can get complicated with sort of boundaries and politics. The biggest argument was, did the flying doctor come? Cause they come from Mount Isa or do the Northern Territory Air Med come and pick me up because I'm in the Territory and we're right, and we, you know, the main hospital, we're closer to Mount Isa, but we're across borders and just it's like this big border thing and so she had to argue with her, I just need to get my husband out of here. Anyway, the flying doctor were really great and came in the end and and um, and um and took me out to Mount Isa, but I was in there at Mount Isa Hospital and, and I remember being in there in this hospital and, I, and I've had so much pethidine by this stage and and we I had a I was part of the Northern Territory Cattlemen's Association branch in Tennant Creek. I think I was a secretary or something at the time, or vice chairman and and uh I wanted to I had some things, it was an annual meeting coming up. We had cattle in the yard and and I'm in this hospital anyway. They put me in the emergency department. I mean there's about three different islands where they have different patients. And I'm lying there and I'm lying there and I'm so cold. And I remember I was really cold and it's probably the shock and all that coming through. But I was full of pethidine. And I remember this doctor, this is, you know, walking around eating a pizza. And he's looking at me and I said, when am I going to get an x-ray? Because I can't be wasting my time in here. I don't want to be in here wasting anyone's time if it's only badly sprained or something. I, I need to get out. Anyway, and then I, I just happened to look over and I see the x-ray room wasn't far away and 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 this lady was shutting up the x-ray. I said, hi, hi, I'm here, I need an x-ray. He said, oh, I'm shutting down anyway. I pleaded with her and this doctor said, no, he can wait till tomorrow. I said, I'm going to get up and walk out of here. This is the high on the pethidine. Anyway, because I felt like I could walk out, not knowing that it was broken in three places. And um, anyway, she said, all right, I'll do your x-ray. 
and she just said to me, you won't be going too far. <laughs> so anyway, so I ended up spending um, a couple of days in Mount Isa Hospital and then the Royal Flying Doctor flew me into um, Townsville and I got all fixed up in there. But, yeah, it was quite amazing. But it was just um, I was working for the Munro family then and Wallace Munro was um, still alive then. It was a great... Great ended up a great friend and from Wee Bolla Bolla and Moree and and they'd bought they owned Midabar at the time. Anyway, they they were very good and um, rang around to find you know as good where the good doctor was and actually one of the best doctors in Australia they were told was in Townsville, and so I was very lucky to get this great doctor that um, yeah so patched me up and whatever because. Uh, it was, I always felt that black soil trip. I can still remember it, and I felt pain for the first time. I think <laughs> I can't imagine that must have been the bumpiest ride, mm. and wouldn't matter if you're going fast or slow. Just no, it was terrible. Yeah. So you've worked on many different properties across the north. Um, I was saying this before we started recording. There's no way I can fit your story into one episode. We're gonna we're gonna have to meet again. There's there's a lot to cover. Bradshaw, did you say that? Like, would you count that as the, I guess, VRD? Is that what you would call it, the Vic River District, or is that well, kind of well, it's in the Victoria River District. Yeah, I suppose yeah. you'd call it that. It's the yeah. lower, the sort of lower end of it. Yeah. Yeah, and then Midi Bar's out in the Barclay. Yeah. Do you call it? Yep. And then you've but you've been in the Top End. You've been in the Kimberley. You've been all over. Yeah, I spent. Um, I spent. I think. Um, Four years at Bradshaw, and then, then I, um, and I was the head stockman after. It was quite funny when I went there. There was a head stockman. I was only just seventeen, I think. And um, the first night I get there, and all these rum drinkers, and I hadn't hardly had a rum in my life, and they lined the rum up and rum, lime, and water, and and then about eleven o'clock at night, I was exhausted. I'd just flown, you know. Brisbane, because I, I came from Queensland, so it was Brisbane, Mount Isa, Darwin, and 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 then in a light aircraft landed in dark in the dark at Bradshaw on the Strip, and and they filled me up full of rum, and I didn't really know what was going on, and but um, and I'll, I'll see you at four o'clock in the morning, roll his head, and take you out to the stock camp. Anyway, that's fine. I had my swag roll. I don't think I slept at all that night. We went out to the stock camp and. Wouldn't have known where I was going. It was all dark. I hadn't even seen the station homestead in the in the daytime. And went out to the went out to the stock camp, and there was a, a, um, a whitehead stockman, and all the rest were Aboriginals. And anyway, the Aboriginals weren't getting on too well with him. And they anyway, and he said, "Oh, after a couple of days, we'd been out mustering or whatever." And one thing I I could do, I could ride. And anyway, we were out mustering and after a couple of days he said, oh, I'm getting out of here, I think they're going to kill me. He said, you're going to come with me, I'm going to sneak out tonight. We only had one vehicle. And and I looked around and I said, no, they look all right to me. Anyway, next morning I wake up, he's gone. And <clears throat> he's terrified of these fellas anyway. So the manager, Rolly Walker, comes out and there's a great old, great Aboriginal bloke, he's passed away now, Um Jerry Jones, and and he said, righto, Jerry, you're the head stockman, and Barty, I've forgotten his last name, Barty's other Aboriginal, you're the, you're the, you're the second head stockman, and Ned, you got to do all the counting, and here I am, you know, I've only been in the, I'm 
17 and I'm suddenly got to do all the counting and that was my responsibility because none of them could count. <laughs> so I had to keep all the paperwork in the yard. Um, and it was owned by the Israelis in those days and, and, um, and it was under management from, um, gun rule management, also William Gunn. And the person that was the sort of pastoral manager was Ross Bunkhurst. Who ended up a great mentor. He went on to run NAPCO and, but he was always a great mentor to me from years to come and always caught up and kept an eye on me. But he actually gave me my first job up there. But I spent, I spent, um, four years on Bradshaw and then I went home and I was just, it was, I was the only white person in this. They always said I was the first white jackaroo class as a jackaroo on, um, in, on Bradshaw station. I mean, there would have been other white stockmen there beforehand but they were always stockmen not jackaroos and and so then I I decided I, I went home for Christmas and my parents said well you're starting to talk pigeon English now and I've just sent you to a good school you better <laughs> better do something about it so I ended up I went and um, I got a job with Stanbroke pastoral company and I worked down on Davenport Downs and I, I got to know old Bill Hughes who was at the fort and was a um, pastoral manager of the Stanbroke for years. And we, um, and I worked on, um, Davenport Downs for about, or just over, or probably about 15 months. And it was all, um, all horse mustering, all, all pack horse and camped out and, Big mobs all cut out and open, you know, big bullocks and, you know, like we had breeders as well, but it was mainly bullocks. I mean, I remember one day I was left to tail by myself a thousand bullocks, um, which was a pretty big job. And so, but it was, yeah, and I, but I worked with Philip Hughes, who was, um, who was a great headstockman down there. And I think the manager, Peter McNevin's passed away now. He's a great manager, but they were good people and taught me a lot and, I got my English back on track a bit from <laughs> speaking pigeon English. Uh, but I, uh, but I had some really great Aboriginal people on Bradshaw that I worked with. And, and some of them were, you know, the best stockmen, you know, they were fantastic stockmen, taught me so much. But I was only down there for 15 months because then Rowley rang me up and said, you better come back up here. I need a head stockman on Mataranka. So I went to Mataranka for a while and, um, station which was owned by the same group as Bradshaw at the time and I was there for oh, nearly 12 months and then then the overseer left at Bradshaw and then they wanted me back over there so I went back to Bradshaw for another four years or something and until they um oh not might have been four years might have only been three years and then I was at this stage I think I was 21 or something 22 and I was promoted to manager of Mataranka Station. So I was sent back to Mataranka then. I was a sort of headstockman overseer on Bradshaw and then, then back to Mataranka to manage it at 22 or 21. My goodness. Um, so I had a pretty fast career rise up. So <laughs> Yeah, was was it what you thought it would be? Like, you know, we spoke earlier in this episode about how when you were young you were just – call to the bush all you wanted to do was go bush was being up in the territory and being out at minibar and even mataranka to uh bradshaw like the country changes is that and it would be very different to the country you grew up in did, did was that what you thought it would be were you yeah i think 
My father was a bit worried about me going, thought I'd get too wild going to the Territory. It was sort of wilder days than what they are now. But um, I remember I went to, when I got the job on Bradshaw, I went to an interview with Ross Bunkhorst. I've never forgotten me. I went in and it was the time of the Brisbane Exposition show was on and uh, anyway, I was there and probably underage drinking and whatever and catching up with school friends and running amok at the show and then this big announcement came over, Ned McCord, you need to come to the the Royal, you know, show office. I thought, oh, anyway, I'll go there and I'll get a message. I've got to ring this um, gun rule management. And anyway, I ring them up and i got to talk to this Ross Bunkers and I ring him up and didn't know who he was. And anyway, he said, I hear you want a job in the Territory. I've got a Jackaroos job going. And I said, yeah, yeah. And he said, well, you better come in for an interview. Can you come in now? And I'm, I must have smelled of cigarettes and alcohol and everything. And anyway, I went into the gun rule management office in Brisbane and I, <clears throat> I said, he sat down and he came out and shook hands and then he brought out all these photo albums. Well, this is where the job is, is up at Bradshaw. So he said, have a look at these for a while. And I'm sitting there. And then about half an hour later, he came back out and he said, what do you think? Yeah, no, it looks, looks okay. And um, then I went into his office. There was nothing about what I'd done or anything like that. He must have sort of known a little bit about me. And he uh, he just gave me a lecture on alcohol. <laughs> he said, now, you can go up there and you can make a go of it or you can piss it all up against the wall. And um, anyway, he went on, on about this for a long time, but he ended up a great friend and sadly he's passed now, but he was, he was, he was a great mentor and... And I was lucky I had a great manager there when Rolly Walker sort of became very much a, a father figure to me and because um, he only had two daughters and I worked with them and I've gone to different places and and he was he was a great mentor and friend as well. So and plus the Aboriginal people that I I've worked with. There's one bloke there I always never forget. You talk about low stress dock handling and things like that, but this fellow's name was Nugget. And, you know, we'd be coacher mustering and you'd see a big bull come out and either Nugget would be on a horse or in a bull catcher or whatever. We always only had one bull catcher. And you'd see Nugget take off after this thing and you, you wouldn't see him for an hour. And you think, is he okay? You start thinking something's happened to him or he's broken down or the horse has fallen or, or he's tied the bull up or something because he's great at throwing bulls. Anyway, and within the hour, this bull had come back to the mob horns, big horns, and, and like the bull would have a smile on his face. And it, it's like they went out there, had a bit of a talk. There wouldn't be any skin off the bull. It had come back and it'd be so happy to be in the mob. But, and I mean, and, and I used to try and go out and sort of peek through the bushes to see what he's doing. And all he was doing was putting pressure on and putting pressure off. And I'd watch him from a distance, but I, I couldn't always go out. But, but he was so good with his cattle. And, and, and I just learned so much by watching him on how to handle cattle. But honestly, these big bulls had come back, not all of them, some of you'd have to tie up, but a majority of them had come back and they, you could see them, they had their ears pricked up and, and they'd have a smile on their dial and they'd be so happy to be in the coacher mob because they didn't want to be out there talking to old Nugget. He'd be one of the best stockmen I've ever come across, but Aboriginal bloke from around Timber Creek, VRD region, yeah. I think that advice that you just um, said before, that you could go out there and make a go of it or piss it all up against the wall, 
very good advice and still very relevant for today. But I also find it fascinating when you said that you were looking at pictures in an album, like he's like, you know, this is what it's like because a picture can only show you so much. Like Mm. you look at a picture and you can't feel the intense heat um, or humidity or the, or, you know, choking on the dust or anything. But then I think about it and that's probably not that different today because we still use pictures and just a bit of videos to, to get people up here and to advertise places and yeah i think that the, well the pictures are probably mainly of the homestead area the, <laughs> nice the, lawns and, the, you know, and big the, trees and, and the big victoria river or something and some barramundi or something so i don't <laughs> think it wasn't too much of the dusty yards and the wild bulls and i remember the first when i was first out there in this old nuggety and uh, we we went out and we had was probably about 10 in the stock camp i'm the only white person and we went out to start coaching mustering, so we had to get a mob of feral cattle together first. And anyway, and we had, I think, about 10, 10 head that day. And then we came across a couple of big bulls, and Nugget said, come with me. And I'm on this horse, and I didn't know what to do, you know. And he just took off after these big bulls. And next minute, I'm, I'm right up behind him, galloping flat out after these bulls, and he's in front of me. And he reaches down, and he next minute I'm dodging boots. He's pulling his boots off. He had an old R.M. Williams boots, high heel, and he's pulling them off at flat gallop. And I'm, and he's just chucking them back. I don't know if I was meant to catch them or what, but anyway, I just thought, well, if I if I lose sight of him, I'm not going to know where to go anyway. So I just kept him in sight. The boots came off. Anyway, next minute he's got this got this ball down, jumps off his horse, throws the ball, and he, get down here and help me tie it up, you know. So. And then I'll get down and put help him put the strap on it, and and um, but yeah, and then then you know I had to get the horses and whatever, but but it was yeah, a pretty scary moment. But I just thought I wasn't going to lose sight of this nugget, and I just hope he wasn't going to get killed by the bull. But anyway, he was so good. Why did he take his boots off? Was well, he, just say so well because the they're all high heel boots. He didn't want to slip with the bull. They uh. better barefoot. They had never wore socks or anything, but he just ripped them off at full gallop and. And, you know, a lot of them used to wear, just go bare feet anyway. They just prefer that than, you know, than their feet were so tough. But, but yeah, like these are big balls. They just get yeah. them off, jump off the horse and run them for a bit and jump off. But they, um, they, you know, there was some great bull throws. Some of them, there was another bloke, Joe Louie. He was a great bull thrower too. They're probably all past now, these stockmen. But, they, um, they were good. One time we we're mustering and, this big bull came out and he's a big knobby bull and I thought it's my turn I can do this and I chased this big bull and anyway and I and Joe Louis behind me and I thought oh he's going to beat me to it and I wanted to show him that I could pull down this big bull and we're right beside this creek and we're just yarding up it had broken away and and um anyway I jumped off too quick the bull was too fresh and it just cracked me off like a whip well I did a big somersault and I ended up in the creek in water and then the bull followed me lucky when it jumped down this bit of a cliff into the creek um, to try and get me it landed on the other side of me the worst thing though that hurt my pride wasn't about falling in the creek Joe Louie threw the bull going up the other side and beat me <laughs> and so that was um Anyway, so I went back to throwing smaller mickeys for a while and got a bit more practice before I took on the bigger bulls again. But, yeah, it was a lot of fun in those days, but it was hard work. Well, it's been an absolute privilege to be able to sit down and take, at this point in time, an hour of your time. And just, like I said earlier, this is just one small part of your story. Like, there's so – I'd love to catch up again 
probably three, four, five more times uh, because there's so much we didn't even talk about, like the time that you bought, you, you know, you owned your own station. Um, you said, as you mentioned it very briefly, you worked, you managed Tipperary. You've, um, and even just talking about now the last four years out at Lake Gregory, which is such an isolated station, there's just so much to talk about. So while I've got you on the spot, will you, will you come back and do another one if I can catch you? If, you? if you'd like me to, yeah. I don't know. Maybe it'll be too boring. But no, I, people but, uh, are going to love I've this. just been having fun, that's all. It, um, life's been fun and it's, and the bush has given me so much. So, yeah, I like giving a bit back to the bush. So. Yeah, no, I think oh, I've enjoyed this so much. And uh, if it wasn't for the fact that, you know, I'm aware of people's time and, and not taking up too much of it, I'd be here for another 10 hours getting the rest of your stories. Um to finish off this episode, the question I like to ask everyone is, I suppose, looking back on what we've spoken about today and the, those parts of your story, um, noting that there's so much else that we haven't covered, what would you say is the major takeaway lesson for you? I think, um, well, you got to, you know, I've been very lucky and had a great family and uh, met a, um, so, you know, every, 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 every good man's got a really good wife or a good woman behind them, I always say. So I'm very lucky there. I've got three great children. I've got a, I've got a teacher, a, do, um, a mechanic and a doctor in, um, with the children. And I'm still paying for their boarding school fees. That's why I'm still working, I think. But, um, but yeah, look, the, the biggest thing is, I think, just getting, um, seizing opportunities when they're there and, and, um, trusting, trusting yourself. But I say just learning. There's so much to learn. And I just say, you know, one of the things that, you know, everyone needs to learn is learn how to listen. And and that's why I've, I've come up now and my big saying is to look, listen and feel. But I think, one, you know, probably one of the main thing is just listening and listening listening to people, letting you know, letting other people talk instead of doing all the talking, I think is important. Probably one of the things I learned. And, and I probably learned that from Aboriginal people because they don't, Sometimes until they know you, they don't talk a lot, but you can learn a lot off them. And, and, um, and, you know, I've been lucky to learn off non-Aboriginal people as well. But, yeah, I think my takeaway is just seizing opportunities when they come and, and, and go with your, go with your gut.